500 kilos probably doesn't sound like a lot to some of your listeners in, in Europe, but there's huge profits here to be made by these international groups. Yeah, that was the sort of the subject of an of Operation Essex um, back in 2019, and um, has led to the possible extradition of a of a guy back, from, an Irishman back from Spain to New Zealand. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs, and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. He has been described as one of New Zealand's most wanted fugitives, accused of masterminding one of the country's largest shipments of methamphetamine in history. Now, the Irishman at the centre of the 500 kilo seizure has been arrested while skiing in Spain's Sierra Nevada. And New Zealand authorities are hoping that he will be extradited within months. Today, I'm joined by Jared Savage, crime correspondent with the New Zealand Herald, to discuss the little-known suspect, Mark Baldy Byrne, and how the Dubliner is suspected of heading up a criminal network spanning from Europe to Asia and into the lucrative drug territories of biker gang-led New Zealand. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. What has been the biggest seizure of methamphetamine in New Zealand that you know of? Well, well the biggest one that we've had was uh, 501 kilos, um, which basically didn't get washed up on the beach up in Northland, but, but pretty much it was bought in off a mothership. Uh, and there was a kind of a comedic sort of um, set of circumstances with this, with this crew going out there and um, and almost losing it in the back of a camper van up in rural Northland, um, but um, one that's very close behind it was a 500 kilo shipment that came in um, in similar circumstances. Actually, a boat coming from off from onshore New Zealand in a, in a rural part of the country, going way out to sea to meet to meet a mothership carrying a, a huge load, you know, and so in the middle of the sea. Uh, a, a long way out and sort of offloading the drugs into the smaller vessel and then back back into the country there. And, um, yeah, that was the sort of the subject of, an, of Operation Essex um, back in 2019 and um, has led to the possible extradition of a, of a guy back, from, an Irishman back from Spain to New Zealand. Yeah, I mean, this is the case we're, we're very interested in. So this was a proper operation to load a, a sort of a mothership amount of, of meth. I mean, obviously, like ourselves, you're an island, so you have smugglers coming in with smaller amounts on, on planes. And I presume you have containers arriving into your ports um, smuggling the stuff. But these are the really big quantities of drugs that are, are causing the bigger problems. And I suppose as soon as they land they're broken up and they start moving in, in smaller amounts and harder then to, to seize. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and, and you're absolutely right. We do have, um, uh, you know, a lot of meth and other drugs coming in through, like, the mail system, you know, through the, coming in through the airport, through Auckland Airport and, and going in that way through, you know, smaller courier packages and um, other smaller consignments coming in by air freight. Obviously, the shipping containers, um, you know, there are some quite good sort of concealments there. But I guess those kinds of methods of getting into the country take a lot of work, right? Like, like the the groups have to hide them, you know, um, 
pretty much. But with, with this method, where you've you've got a boat, I mean, New Zealand is a small country, but we've it's pretty much all coastline. Um, so people can launch boats from pretty much anywhere, any small marina. So, uh, if you if you've got someone on board who knows what they're doing, they can go a long way out um, past where you know our border control kind of monitors, um, meet a boat out to sea carrying a huge, you know, huge amount of, of drugs, 500 kilos and, and pretty much both those occasions and then and then bringing it back in. You know, there's no customs at the in the marina or those smaller places. Um, you, you load a few boxes into the into the back of a van and, and away you go. And um, once you're inside the country, it's they are very hard to, to trace down. Typically in New Zealand... Um, uh, meth will be sold at a wholesale level in, a, in kilogram amounts, so 500 kilos broken up into 500 small packages, uh, each of them wholesale from anywhere between 100,000 to 150,000 New Zealand dollars. Um, to give you some idea of, of the markup, the profits to be made, that kilogram sort of um, manufactured in the Golden Triangle in sort of Southeast Asia or, or Mexico, it's probably $1,000, you know. So there's huge profits here to be made by these international groups. Um, so even though New Zealand's a small market, um, 500 kilos probably doesn't sound like a lot to some of your listeners in, in Europe, but uh, the, the amount of money means that it's probably on par in terms of a, a much larger shipment to to a bigger country. And sophisticated enough for an Irish guy who you've named in the New Zealand Herald as Mark Baldy Byrne. Um, we've been trying to, between us, find out a little bit of information on him and uh, we haven't had much success as of yet. But he has been lifted in Spain and is now facing extradition to New Zealand. But pretty sophisticated for an Irish guy to identify New Zealand, to source methamphetamine and then to try and ship it in in such a way. Well, well absolutely. And it seems like um, that he's got very good connections, probably in Southeast Asia. We know that there was meetings held in, in Bangkok, in Thailand, Bangkok, Thailand, before... The shipment came into New Zealand about about six months later, so you know it's fair to assume that that's roughly the area where the where the drugs were, were manufactured. Um, he's got enough contacts, allegedly, to um, to find a way into New Zealand, um, and then he's obviously got a crew allegedly selling it on his behalf in the country, and then finding a way to get that money back out. Um, out of New Zealand and back back into his sort of coffers. So he's the alleged mastermind behind it all. Um, like you say, it's it's a, it's very sophisticated, well organised, and, and a lot of money to be made. Um, we know that they were using cipher encrypted devices, which are, um, the police and, and law enforcement can't um, intercept. Um, so that's a common device. Uh, used amongst the various criminal groups, so yeah, very very well organised, very slick, and it uh, he kind of only what's kind of unusual for us anyway. New Zealand is uh, like often we have these groups sending um, large shipments in here to supply criminal networks here. Um, actually, getting an investigation where there's enough evidence to identify the alleged mastermind back overseas is is quite quite sort of rare for New Zealand, I suppose, in a way. Like, it takes a lot of cooperation with other international law enforcement groups. 
Um, and so, yeah, I mean, this would be if, if he is successfully extradited back to New Zealand, it would be one of the one of the big catches for the New Zealand police force for sure. And we're seeing that sort of um, international cooperation more and more. Um, in particular in recent times with our own Kinahan network and uh, the Americans coming in with those sanctions um, and the other police forces working with them to such an extent over the past six, seven years that, um, you know, they're they're focused on a full dismantling of that massive organisation. But um, Byrne, had you heard of him before and what sort of information were you getting in 2019 when this massive shipment was seized was there any suggestion that um, this was being organised from Spain or is it more normal that um, the organisation of these big shipments are are more local? Yeah it's an interesting question because back in 2019 um, the way that it it all unravelled was um, New Zealand police in Auckland from the National Organised Crime Group, they got a tip from their counterparts in in Queensland, uh, in in Australia, and what had happened over there was um, they had had a search warrant in Brisbane and they found 766 kilos of of MDMA or or ecstasy as as it's called here as well. Um, a huge amount of huge amount of party drugs, and they rang up the the detectives here in Auckland and said, "Hey, look, the guy that we've arrested um, has been in Auckland for for ten days, uh, sorry, longer than ten days, but ten days ago he was in Auckland and he was at this particular apartment. Do you want to go and have a little look?" So they got a warrant, knocked on the well, they didn't knock on the door. They entered entered the uh, they entered the apartment and found an old boy in there. He was British too, in his sixties, sitting there watching the league on TV, and um, they sort of having a sort of having a chat to him, and and he gave them the story around, oh, you know, I've come over here on holiday, and I sort of ran out of money, and I was drinking at the pub, and I met this other Englishman, and he just kind of said, oh, come and stay with me, and invited me into the apartment, and then you know he just up and left sticks, and you know I've got I've got no idea what's in the apartment, and of course they had a look inside the wardrobe, and there was. Um, about 12 boxes, and inside the boxes was 193 kilograms of, of meth. So at that point, even just finding that 193 kilos, that was pretty much, I think that was the third biggest find uh, ever in New Zealand. And then, um, you know, and obviously, so they charged him with, with possession for supply, and then they kind of went through the security footage and all the, you know, the phone records and, um tracked down some other bloke who was, he had, you know, when he couldn't get a hold of his friend uh, in Auckland, realised that sort of the gig was up, so he tried to scarper, and they managed to get him on the, he actually uh, was sitting on the plane um, when they came and tapped him on the shoulder and said, hey, (laughs) you need to come and talk to us about this, and um, uh, similar stories actually for both of those gentlemen, Uh, English, English, had incurred large amounts of debt, had sort of drug and alcohol sort of addiction problems, and that's how they got sort of uh, recruited into this network. Promised largest, you know, large amounts of money, free holiday to New Zealand. All you got to do is sit in this apartment and sort of babysit this large amount of drugs. Um, and that's probably where it would have ended. Um, you know, the, the police didn't have a huge amount of other leads to follow up in terms of the wider international network. So very much just caught a couple of pawns really at the, at the lower end of the of the chain, and then so that was July 2019, and then in September 2019, 
um, a separate group of detectives from the from our organised crime group. Um, they were they had a couple of Australians under surveillance, and um, they sort of basically swooped in on them and, and found two hundred and ten kilos of meth. Um, packaged in exactly the same way as the meth found um, up in Auckland a few months earlier. Same sort of plastic, one kilo containers wrapped in plastic and in the same sort of boxes. And um, apparently no connection between the two between the two groups, but they managed to sort of trace it back um, to the guys that had sort of helped bring it in back in sort of uh, April 2019, and they realised that um, it was the same shipment and, and, and they could wind, wound it all the way back to, to it being brought in from this this, um, this mothership. So quite a lot of work has gone into that point. Um, all, pretty much all of those guys have gone through the courts now or, or are awaiting trial, but um, sort of unbeknown to everyone. I mean, it's, it's been a trial. There's been several sentencings. Um, nothing at all was mentioned around possible extradition. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just sort of managed to get a bit, little bit of information, sort of fell out about it. And, um, uh, yeah, then we see these charge sheets for, for your man, Mark Byrne, so, as, as the alleged mastermind behind it over in Spain. So, quite, quite so what we can presume is that... They continued with those investigations involving the phone traffic and presumably, you know, checking where these individuals, these pawns had been, who they had met, and they managed to trace the sort of organisation of this or the suspected organisation of this back to Spain. Are you, do you have any idea, is it Costa or elsewhere in Spain? I'm not too sure. We kind of were relying a little bit on, there was a little bit of Spanish media reporting uh, on it and using the dodgy Google English translation, it seems that they were in the sort of Sierra Nevada area and this guy Byrne was on holiday um, and it sounds like the this, Guardia this Civil, the, the Spanish police force, put a lot of effort into tracking him down. I mean, that's that's probably the bit that surprised me. I mean, um, you know, New Zealand police putting in an extradition request happens fairly, you know, fairly regularly, like, the, the, you know, the request is made, but, you know, these things fly off and, you know, to, to interbol offices around the world. There's never any guarantee that um, another police force who are presumably busy with their own problems to deal with uh, will take it upon themselves to, to go and do a bit of work. But it sounds like in this case, um, there were sort of dozens of police officers undercover um, tracking him down and, and, and picking him up for the arrest. So, so the extradition order request, I should say, was made in November last year, uh, and the Spanish police picked him up in January. So, uh, to me, that was almost the most surprising surprising aspect of it that <laughs> someone would would care about little old New Zealand at the bottom of the world and um, and potentially send him back here to to stand trial. And of course, the Sierra Nevada is the mountain range where they ski outside of Malaga and above the Costa del Sol. Um, it sounds like the Spanish really uh, did do their work on that because similar to yourselves, sometimes Ireland sends extradition requests, certainly over the, in the past. I think the cooperation is better now between the Irish and Spanish police, but in the past they used to just go missing and people can go missing in Spain around the Costa so easily. Um, you know, they can get themselves a big 
villa up in the mountains and they can live there happily forever. There's a reason why the Casa del Sal is so popular amongst the criminal fraternity. Um, if you speak to criminals who lived there, you know, were based there, they talk about a very easy place to to live, to operate openly. And, uh, you know, whether you believe them or not, they talk about a system that was in place in the past few decades where a couple of quid went a long way, even if you were arrested. So, um, you know, it is very significant. So Byrne, we we will hope to get more information on him, but we do know he's Irish and that he's from Dublin, that he's been based out in Spain. And it's a very popular name. When I went looking to see if I could find anything back, uh, I'm sure you have those names in New Zealand, but uh, looking for a, a Mark Byrne is like looking for a needle in a haystack here, really. But... Um, um, we thought we had something and then it sort of fell through at the last minute. But anyway, we will persist with it. The methamphetamine market in uh, New Zealand, because we don't have that problem, thankfully, here, um, was all those shipments you're talking about? I mean, they're massive amounts. Was that all for the New Zealand market alone? Yeah, I've wondered about this myself. Um like those are big shipments. Um, we actually have here. I've often wondered whether or not there's, you know, sort of the big shipments come in and then they're used to stockpile, and then the groups can sort of control the flow um, of the drugs into the market. I.e., it doesn't all come in at once. You know, it's sort of drip, drip fed in, and um, and and that helps sort of keep keep the prices high. Um, but I mean, we we have this wastewater testing year um, in which so ESR, which is like our Crown Research Institute, they're the scientists that often do work on behalf of the police. They we have uh, wastewater testing stations, about fifty of them across the country, and they actually monitor the monitor the, the drug use, drug consumption across the country. And we New Zealand consumes somewhere between fifteen to twenty kilograms per week across the country. Um, that's probably a conservative estimate from, from ESR. So when you look at it, say it's 20, uh, which would be at the high end of that, times 52 weeks, yeah, you're looking at a, a tonne of drugs of methamphetamine alone per year. Um, potentially it's higher than that because... Um, for various, you know, the methodologies mean that there's, you know, there's margin of error on there. So... You know, we do have a big market. Um, I think Australia has a big market too, and a, and a lucrative market. I, I wonder sometimes whether these large shipments, um, some of it is on freighted on to Australia, but but definitely we have, we do have enough demand to be consuming um, a large amount of, a large amount of drugs. I mean, just for your listeners, I mean, methamphetamine is sort of uh, you wholesale it for. At, at a kilogram, for say anywhere between one hundred to one hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars, that is then broken into ounces, ounce amounts, um, which sell for anywhere between six to ten thousand dollars. From then, it's broken into grams, and then into um, point, you know, point one of a gram. That's how it's consumed. Point one of a gram, so which sells on the street for around about a hundred dollars. So. Um, there's profits to be made at every single level. Um, uh, the demand is as high as it's ever been, if not higher, um, than it was when it first came in 20 years ago. So it's it's definitely a, a drug that's caused a lot of social issues for us. Easily our um, 
uh, yeah, you, when you look at that, cocaine is a long way. Well, MDMA is, is fairly popular, but cocaine is more popular than it used to be. But um, yeah, methamphetamine, um, by far and away, the number one uh, controlled substance in the country. So what exactly is meth and who are using it? Is it... Is it the party culture or is it more kind of multi-drug users, problem drug users using it? We have this idea of it, we've, you know, from seeing it back in the States in the day and that it's it's a very lowbrow drug maybe and it might be one the middle classes would avoid. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I think it's changed over the sort of 20 years. Um, meth is a, it's a synthetic drug. Uh, it's man-made. It's a stimulant, um, so it gives users... Uh, an incredible high, um, a lot of energy. Um, you know, people talk a lot when they're on it. They're they're up all night. Um, they think they've got ideas that can save the world. Um, and then the come the come down's pretty pretty hard. And of course, you're always trying to um, chase that same feeling, and it's it's never quite the same. I think over time, it leads to a lot of. Um, for, for heavy users, leads to, you know, paranoia, um, you know, that paranoia and anxiety and a lot of weight loss. And so it's, um, in, in the early days when it came in, it was linked to quite a few sort of high-profile, kind of like crazy sort of very aggressive crimes. Um, but it was interesting. When it first came in, it was very much a party drug. It was quite a popular sort of drug which cut across the social divide. So you had... Um, white-collar professionals using it, um, you know, <laughs> university students from leafy suburbs, you know, all the way across the, you know, what blue-collar workers who needed to be up all night to to drive the trucks that they were driving or all the way through to, you know, sort of your more poorer socioeconomic um, uh, people who were, you know, down and out, as I suppose you could say. So it cut all the way across that. Um, and, but then it kind of got a bit of a bad stigma because it was getting uh, links to a lot of these crimes and um, anytime something crazy happened, people would assume that it was a meth user. Or So I think over time it developed a bit of a stigma. We're sort of talking 15 years ago. Um, I still think there are a lot of high-performing people who, who, would, who would use it socially, who don't seem to form an addiction to it, who can sort of, you know, use it to fuel their weekends and then come back to work. Um, I, I think there is, a, I think there's still a lot of a lot of that going on, although I think those users are probably switching a bit more into MDMA or or um, or cocaine, but but definitely from from the wastewater testing that I sort of mentioned earlier, um, you know, you can work it out on a per capita basis. And, and you can, when you look at the stats across the country, you can see that it's having a disproportionate um, impact on the smaller rural communities um, in our country. So the, the kinds of places that have high unemployment um, and, and high rates of other social issues, youth suicide, um, poor, you know, poor housing, uh, education, th- those sorts of things. It's all tied into those same sorts of social issues. So we can definitely see now that sort of poorer, more vulnerable communities are disproportionately impacted by it. And I think that's probably the transition that's happened over the last sort of 15, 15 20 years. I think, I think it now is, um, I, I think the evidence is there to say it's much more entrenched in poorer communities 
uh, who are using it heavily. Uh, and there are also the, the communities that can least afford to have those issues, you know, in, in, in their uh-huh. homes. So the, we've spoken before about um, the gangs in Australia and, in, or sorry, in New Zealand, and indeed you've written a book about the sort of rise of gangland in your country. The biker gangs are very significant, and I think you mentioned to me before, they kind of control the meth. Uh, so are they not able to source it and bring it in themselves? Is that why you have some of these sort of European-based criminals involving in that? Or are they maybe working possibly with it? And we know, we don't know yet the details of um, the situation with Byrne until the extradition process is, is, uh, is gone through and perhaps the trial in New Zealand. But would you suspect that if there is sort of big European... Uh, gangs involved in this that the, the bikers are working with them or are they just muscling in on their territory? Uh, I th- in this particular case I'm not entirely certain yet but just generally speaking I, I think it's another one of those shifts you know in, in the evolution of organised crime here so 20 years ago uh, when I mean, because meth was actually being manufactured here locally that was um, basically people had bought the recipe in from from the US, um, through uh, the, the the legend goes through the, through the Hells Angels Motorcycle Club. They were the ones. Some of their members had had bought it over, and um, you know you can manufacture it through. It's a chemical process, chemical heat and pressure. Um, and so in those days, you could the main ingredient was pseudoephedrine, which um, could be extracted from a very common cold and flu remedy. So you had people. Going around pharmacies, buying huge amounts of like you know cold and flu medicines, <laughs> and then stripping out the main ingredient to cook meth. Um, we those those cold and flu medicines got banned, um, and then the next thing we had was huge amounts of pseudoephedrine coming in from China because that was a huge, um, it was perfectly legal over there, and um, the big pharmaceuticals. Um, manufacturing tons of it. So the Asian groups, the Asian crime syndicates could get their hands on the pseudoephedrine and send it over to New Zealand where the local gangs controlled the manufacturer, local biker gangs controlled the manufacturer and distribution of it. Um, and and we for a long time we just kept on seeing those lucrative sort of um, uh, prices there. And I think what changed um, was that I think these international groups um, saw the huge amount of money to be made and, and were thinking, well, instead of just supplying these guys in New Zealand who are, you know, making truckloads of money off it, why don't we get in there and muscle in a little bit in terms of the supply side of it? Those guys can still distribute it, um, but we're going we're gonna to make more money um, selling directly into the market and then shifting the profits offshore. Um, so there's been a bit of a shift in that. So it's it's not just the Asian groups, but also the Mexican cartels have been um, sending in meth and coke in um, since about sort of 2015, 2016. And, that, and that's when we saw the shift to the much larger um, shipments coming into New Zealand. So for a long time, you know, uh, 100 kilos shipment was for for 10 years was head and shoulders the biggest shipment way back in 2006. And then sort of 2015, 2016, we started seeing the, the 100 kilos more regularly, 200, 400, and then 500 kilos coming in. So 
Um, that's been a big shift. And, and at the same time, we had some of the Australian biker gangs being deported from Australia to New Zealand um, under the Australian Migration Act. So they were kind of, some of these guys might have been born in New Zealand but had grown up in Aussie and then joined gangs over there like the Comancheros or the Mongols. Uh, and the Australian government changed the the migration rules so that they could basically kick anyone out on character, you know, good character grounds. So we, New Zealand, you know, we started getting these quite serious criminals being deported back here. Um, and of course, without any sort of family networks or support, um, they did what they knew best, which was to sort of start new chapters of their gang. And some of these groups are truly um, global, globally significant crime groups, um, particularly the common Comancheros have their leaderships based in Turkey, so out of reach of, of extradition here in New Zealand. They're working in with these big sort of um, Southeast Asian and Mexican cartels to bring the supply in. So they're they're bringing it in, and I, I, I've got no doubt they were um, controlling some of these other big shipments that have come in, but I haven't seen any link between them and, and Mark Byrne. Um, so he may have just been, yeah, just sort of an independent operator, clearly big enough to be sending, well, allegedly sending 500 kilos of meth to New Zealand and, and 700-odd kilos of MDMA to Australia. So he, he seems to have kept under the radar pretty well from, from what I can tell. Isn't it interesting to see the business minds at the top of some of these cartels that clearly it was cheaper and less risk to have the the uh, meth made outside the country and shipped in. Maybe the workforce was cheaper in Mexico or Asia. Um, same as every commodity, really. But um, And I presume that uh, the meth made in, in labs in Mexico, we've seen some of those, but in Asia, they are producing so much in China and various places. You have a lot of cigarette smugglers and all the rest of it mixing in business circles, underworld business circles in these countries, and presumably they network and then they can get to, to meet the meth suppliers um, identify the, the areas for, look, it, it's not rocket science, is it, this drug dealing? It seems to be a little bit similar to the, to the normal world, really. Yeah, it's definitely the same economic principles apply, you know, and um, you know, a lot of these guys are incredibly well connected. Um, obviously, brilliant business minds, um, but sending in products that, yeah, we um, might not be so good for you. But yeah, I mean, very much the other the other big switch too, which has happened in the last sort of five years, is um, for a long time the meth, a lot of meth was being manufactured in China, but there's, there was a bit of a crackdown on that politically, and in the police force, they were really sort of. Um, Pushing down on these on these um, laboratories, so they they they've kind of moved the workforce <laughs> into the Golden Triangle area, which is effectively lawless uh, in and around sort of Myanmar, Laos, Thailand, and um, from there it's like because there's so many bo countries bordering one another um, with very little control and customs control, a um, lot of bribery and corruption going on. Um, so they've got these massive labs that are in the middle of the jungle somewhere, um, effectively uh, with paid militia sort of keeping keeping anyone with who might want to stop them from getting anywhere near them. And, yeah, and that's, we're seeing those sort of um, those drug shipments all around the world, not just New Zealand and Australia, but 
Um, Japan as well is another one with a, with a huge market. So yeah, it's um, mm. it's certainly a very difficult um, thing to to police. Yeah, and of course, politics or bad politics really is fueling this market um, as well as terrorism, which has been funded by it. Um, finally, then on Mark. Burn and if anybody knows who Mark Byrne is or a bit of background, please contact me or Jared and we'll liaise and pass on the information between each other. But what is expected next with him? He is facing extradition in Spain. Do you have any idea when that extradition hearing will be? Is he fighting it? And if you do get him back to New Zealand, is he likely to go before the ordinary courts or do you have a similar system like we do at three judge court? Yeah, so I've, I've tried unsuccessfully to get information out of the Spanish police and the Spanish courts as to when an extradition hearing might take place. I mean, I would assume that, that he would be fighting the extradition. Often the extradition hearings, if it's anything like in New Zealand, they're based on technicalities around um, how the warrants were, were served and issued. It's not really an issue about the, the evidence per se, so... I mean, any anyone who didn't want to be sent to the other side of the world to face a drugs trial would be would be fighting that tooth and nail. I would have thought. Um, so, uh, in my previous experience of these extradition cases could be anywhere between six to twelve months. Um, I'm unaware too in Spain. I'm sure they probably have an appeal process too. Where even with our lower court says yes, go back to New Zealand, he'll have appeal rights. Um, once he, if he does come, if he does get here, um, you know he'll be held in custody. I would have thought because it'd be hard to find a bail address. <laughs> we don't really know too many people, but yeah, who these big drugs cases um, tend to go to our. We have the district court, which is the, your lower level sort of thing. Then we have the high court. Um, they tend to go to the high court, which is a, a high court judge and a jury. Um, these sorts of cases, if you go to trial, anywhere between six to 12 weeks, depending on the evidence, there'll be lots of um, communications sort of evidence, I would have, I would have thought. Um, uh, and then from there, you know, if and when someone's convicted, at that point, it goes to our court of appeal where there's a three judge, three judge system, um, and then the Supreme Court beyond that. Um, so, yeah, it still could be a long time mm. before before we're having another chat about the result of this trial or not. Do do all your organised crime cases go before juries? Yes, unless unless the defendants choose not to. Um, but I can't recall the last time I saw a judge alone trial for a mm. for any case really. I think most people like to appeal to the uh, to their the you know their peer jury of their peers. So um, they certainly do. Most most of them would choose to go before a jury if they could. Certainly here in Ireland, they don't get that choice to go before the special criminal court, which was originally established to put IRA terrorists on trial or whoever was involved in in the troubles and it has kind of kept going and now is um, the house of organised crime and uh, they they are very much, um, the cases are very much dependent obviously on the law and there isn't that ability to appeal to ordinary citizens and I suppose the idea is as well that uh, with organised crime cases that there is the 
given the nature of the individuals on trial, they would have um, in the past tried to, you know, fix a jury or to nobble a member of a jury. But uh, yeah, you sort of think it's the norm everywhere, but it clearly isn't. Well, we've had we've definitely had cases where. Uh, you know, there's been jury tampering um, or intimidation and, and people have turned up to knock on the door. Um, but, yeah, it's the it's the idea of having a, a judge and jury has really been held onto quite tightly here. There's been talk of um, uh, having judge-alone trials for, uh, you know, for, for sexual uh, criminal cases, but that's sort of been rebuffed. Um, yeah, they've really hung on to it quite quite tightly, um, and, and, I, and I understand why. Um, I think the other factor too with these organised crime cases is they can often take so long. So if you're on the jury, you could be sitting in the dock for eight, ten, twelve weeks, and that's a long time out of your uh, out of your life, isn't it? So um, I can certainly see the appeal from the Irish system um, having a judge having judges there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Jared, all else good in New Zealand, I hope, apart from the weather, you're in your hat. Well, we're looking for, I'll tell you what we're looking forward to, Nicola, we're playing the Irish rugby team in three tests coming up, and you guys have had the wood on us in the last few tests, so um, three <laughs> tests at home in the middle of a dreary New Zealand winter, I'm, I'm hoping that we, we, we pick up a few wins and, and even up that ledger. Yeah, and you're... Um, your temperature, I'm just asking you that because I was so surprised to see you all in your winter woolies. <laughs> I think it's, um, it's, well, you, it's probably warm for you guys, but it's about six degrees here at the moment. So it's... Um, oh, six degrees. Yeah, no, I'd be wearing my hat myself. You're okay. You pass. <laughs> Listen, Jared Savage, thank you very much. Hey, thanks, guys. Thanks, Nicola. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. 